Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. This is your host, Jack, and I have the ADD Mind. Joining me once again is my son, Duncan, and today we're going to talk about something that, when I say Duncan is an expert in this, he definitely is. Until recently, he was one of probably less than, I don't know, 200 people that could do what he did on the whole planet. Yeah, at that current time, yeah. So. I would say that makes you an expert in that field. That is GPS, Global Positioning Satellites. He knows what they're, or systems, sorry. He knows what they're capable of doing, what they aren't capable of doing. And you are right, though. They are satellites. (laughs) Yes. He, He was an operator of those satellites in the Air Force. And he was good enough at his job that he was able to give Mike Pence the commands to put a, or the, I guess the commands needed to send a command to a satellite. Yes. I would imagine that they would pick someone competent to do that so that the vice president doesn't crash a billion-dollar satellite. <laughs> <laughs> and then he also uh, has spoke to uh, a large number of senators, uh, represented, uh, representatives at the federal level, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, other generals, about the capabilities of GPS. Once again, I'm fairly certain they wouldn't select a moron to do that. Also, uh, General Raymond, the guy who now runs Space Force, hand-selected me in the general way. You know, that airman with glasses, he's going to D.C. Right. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's that's the general way of uh, hand-selecting someone. Yeah, basically by name. (laughs) It was most of Congress, correct? Uh, It was quite a few. It was a... um, Quite a few people. Um, I think there was... Oh, shit. How many were there? It was a while ago. Yeah, um, it's been been several years. What was that, 2017 when you did that? It was either seven... Yeah, it was 17. Um, yeah. I think there was, a, there was definitely over 20. It, it's hard to keep track, though. It was pretty difficult because, you know, they all have, like, five in their retinue to write shit down for them. Mm-hmm. But, yeah... It was, it was really cool. It was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, I got coined by General Goldfein. Right. He's a cool dude. Yeah. You've also and been coined by General Raymond and twice. Secretary of the Air Force, correct? Uh, yes, once by the SACAF and twice by General Raymond. Now I need to run into him again so he can coin me as Space Force. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, that was your previous life when you were... Yeah. Yeah, it's too late now. In the Air Force. So how was your first uh, Veterans Day as a veteran? I'm going to be honest with you. I've been on mids, so I I just slept. Right. (laughs) Slept it away. Yeah. So I would say good. Okay. Yeah. As we're recording this, it's the Saturday after Veterans Day. So anyway, Duncan, why don't you sort of start off? And obviously there are things you are not able to talk about. So don't. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, I I went through this and made sure it's all good. So if you could maybe give a brief history on how GPS started, maybe how many generations of satellites there have been up there. Yeah, I can do that. So GPS originally came about in, I want to say, the 70s. And during that time, it was more of a test to see if you could do a, you know, global navigation system in space. Mm -hmm. Um, They, in those days, they were, no, it wasn't the 70s. I think it was the 90s. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Um, Yeah, it was, it was around there. In the ancient days, right? Well, um. hey now, hey now, mister. Because when I was in the Army, I was at a, uh, uh, I was at JRTC, and 
the tanks that we had had just been updated with GPS sort of that was and like a newer uh, version of the GPS than what they had. That was ninety four, right? Somewhere on there. Uh, no, I went to JRTC in ninety six. No, oh, okay. Let's see, uh, that, yeah, it was it was ninety seven when I went to JRTC. Okay, yeah, so, because I had um, come back from Kuwait when I went to JRTC. So I'm pretty sure uh, GPS originally came about as a test bed in the eighties. I know for a fact by I think like ninety one or ninety two. Uh, it had switched from a test bed over to two SOPs. Mm-hmm. Uh, two SOPs being Second Space Operations Squadron. That's the squadron that runs GPS. But yeah, I, I know around uh, 92-ish is whenever it had switched over completely. Uh, before mm-hmm. that, it hadn't quite switched over completely. Uh, and basically, it just swapped units. And, you know, got codified and testing material and education and that sort of thing, or training. So that would make sense. Also, back in those days, uh, GPS was nowhere near as good as it is now, mm-hmm. um, which I think sense. is really cool. Yeah. So during that time, the Block 1 satellites, which were all the testbed ones, uh, had all been uh, decommissioned. And the word that is used for that due to the orbit that they're in, is super sinking. Uh, Basically, you have a trash orbit because they're too far out. It'll take them several hundreds of thousands of years to get to the Earth to burn up in the atmosphere. Okay. So basically, you push them into an orbit that nobody uses, and it's a trash orbit. Uh, I know that sounds bad, listeners, but give it some time. We'll go into the orbits and stuff, and you'll realize it doesn't matter at all. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> the trash orbit, they would have to put stuff up there to fill it for it to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Whenever, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that because uh, we have to to understand GPS. Okay. But yeah, uh, around early 90s is whenever it switched to two stops and uh, GPS has always been ran by the military. That's not a bad thing. That's actually a really good thing. And we'll get into why that's a good thing. Okay. Um. So... Yeah, on in those years, that the the nineties as a decade, and up until I want to say, I think the two R, the first two R launched in like two thousand five or two somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. No, no, it was before that. It was uh, it was about two thousand whenever the first one launched. But the two A's, they were good at what they did, but they were incredibly simple. In fact, they were not. They weren't even on sixteen bit processing. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah, they were really good at what they did, but they run into a lot of issues. You can't have commands ready to go on them, you know, to go mm-hmm. off at a certain time. They literally don't have the RAM or the memory to do anything outside of run normally. Right. Well, I mean, all satellites, everything that is in space, the technology is always going to be older than what is currently available on Earth. Because if you need something to, say, launch in 2024, you have to start building it and designing the software and everything that it needs. So there's a certain point where you can't put, you know, the newest thing in. So if your satellite's going to launch in 2024, it probably has 2020 technology in it. Um, and if, if you're non-military. If, right. That, well, that's <laughs> what I'm saying, if you're not military. So, like, for example... Well, let's just say the Juno probe that's around Jupiter right now. I think it's been there for two years, but of course it takes five five or six years to get to Jupiter. You know, so here it is 2021, but that satellite is probably using, you know, 2010, 2011 technology. Um, if, if that. Yeah. Uh, it, I would say earlier, just because, you know, NASA doesn't have the budget, they it takes them years to save up. Right. The only company i know that it's probably got the most current up to date when they launch satellites is probably spacex with starlink because they build 60 of them and then they launch them within a few months of being done (laughs) um i was actually going to talk about that um okay and the acquisition process oh so that yeah my uh my dad has a good point here where if it's military or nasa 
you can expect the satellite to be, you know, 10 to 15 years old on tech. Whereas, like, SpaceX, since what they're doing is, like, small sets, uh, which basically means, like, one small set unit, they go by units, one unit can fit easily within, like, a briefcase. Okay. So, since they're doing those, they're really, really cheap, which means you don't have that super long acquisition process. Right. Um, which is really cool because you have a quick turnaround. But I'll tell you right now, a small set couldn't even get past low Earth orbit. Right. You need more fuel. Yeah, well, they're not designed to either. No, no, they're not. And putting them out there wouldn't be worth anything. Yeah. Um, Because, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, go go ahead. Finish saying what you were going to say. Yeah, basically, they, they don't have the fuel and that far out, their signal would get lost. They mm. don't have the power to put down a good signal. Right, which is one of the reasons why they're putting 15,000 of them up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, just a simple ADD moment here that I'm going to interject. Most people do not know this, but we have NASA and the Galileo Space Probe to thank for having MP3s. Oh, yeah. Because, so Galileo was supposed to launch to space to go to Jupiter on the second or third mission that would have been after the Challenger disaster, or the Challenger uh, disaster. Yeah. And, of course, there was like a two-year hold on uh, shuttle launches after that, and then the first one they did was sort of an experimental back-to-flight, and then they bumped some other stuff around that was more time sensitive. So by the time the Galileo probe launched, it had been sitting in storage for like four and a half or five years. And when it came time to launch, I have no idea why this happened. They just took it out of storage, loaded it into the shuttle, flew up into space and launched it. Nobody bothered to see, are all of the antennas going to properly unfold? Well, in the five years, the high gain antenna got jammed and it wouldn't open fully. And of course, this freaked everybody out that was part of that program because it's supposed to send all of these pictures back from Jupiter, and how are they going to do that? And so they invented a whole new technology for that to send all of the pictures from the low-gain antenna, and that was MP3s. (laughs) And then somewhere along the line, somebody was like, this is the perfect format for music. So anyway, sorry to interrupt you there. I just thought that was a cool thing. We're talking about satellites. Thought I'd throw that in. So, oh, yeah, no, it's great. So back to GPS. Um, so I'd like to get a little more into the weeds now, and feel free okay. to stop me at any point if you need right. me to clarify on stuff. Okay. So like I mentioned, GPS is now run by the Space Force. It was Air Force before that, and then it was always Air Force before that. And the reason that's a benefit, GPS is free. GPS is free for the entire world. Everybody Mm -hmm. uses it in some way, vicariously, unless you're those one guys on, I think, like Madagascar or something that shoot arrows at planes outside Mm -hmm. of like those dudes and maybe some, you know, it's actually in the Amazon. Oh, it's Indonesia. Okay. So, yeah, outside of like those dudes, you use GPS, whether you know it or not, not just for navigation. You look on your phone for what time it is that runs off GPS. Um, uh, you eat food. Farmers use GPS for precise precisioning uh, on where to plant things and also for timing. Yes. At least in, you know, uh, worlds or not worlds, countries where uh, they use more sophisticated technology. Um, real quick, I follow a YouTube channel. That's, this is just me. Uh, and it's a guy who's a 22-year-old far, uh, corn farmer in Iowa. Oh. And he started this YouTube channel. And I've sort of learned from watching how they go and do everything. Yes, they use all GPS. And GPS has actually enabled them to get more bushels to harvest and everything. Yes. Because their fields are perfectly planted. And then when they harvest it, it perfectly picks it up. And the GPS, uh, there's something they can attach to that called auto steer. And they actually, having the auto steer and GPS work together... They are more precise when they drive <laughs> to do that. Yeah. 
and um, so they they get a better yield. Just sort of what you were saying about the farmers, I just thought. Oh no, that that's actually really good because I don't have in here in my script or my brief, whatever, uh, about accuracy of GPS, which yeah. is something to go into. So, right. uh, by the way, that YouTube channel is uh, Cole the Corn Star. If you want to watch it, <laughs> I may I may watch a couple videos. That sounds interesting. So we'll talk about precision and. Before we get into precision, I'm going to finish up with why it being run by the military okay. is a good thing. Just remind me if I forget. <laughs> <laughs> so the benefit of GPS being ran by the military is the military has quite the budget, right? So I've noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit much, um, which is why the Space Force is a good thing. So that way they get the budget they need instead of having to wait for Daddy Air Force to give them scraps. Anyways, because of that, it is our taxpayer dollars that fund it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're aware, but enlisted don't get paid a lot. <laughs> really? Um, they don't get paid much. In I, fact, oh, you know what? I did know that. Yeah. So running GPS with it being military is actually way cheaper than it would be private because there's a lot of shit that has mm -hmm. to be done. So just the few contractors that we do have, it's still cheap. Um, also, with the military running it, you can run like 24-7 ops and all of that, and there's less concerns. Mm -hmm. um, it being militarized is a good thing. So if people talk about how it isn't, I'd like you to try and change their mind. Maybe look it up for yourself uh, on the reasons that I've talked about, on why it is beneficial. Um, I, I believe you. Yeah. Well, you know, people tend to get up in arms about the military run and stuff. It's still for civilians. You know, the, it does some things for the military, but it's pretty much for civilians. So that's, it's important. Mm -hmm. Now on to accuracy. I remembered GPS right now promises about seven meters of accuracy. It mm -hmm. will not go above seven meters of deviation. And that's from the satellite. Mm -hmm. um, by the time it gets down to you, It'll be about seven meters of deviation, but you also have to think about uh, the receiver in your phone is cheap. It's not that great. So whenever it does the math, it could mess up. Mm -hmm. uh, so you may have a bit more deviation there. But still, half the time, you know, you're looking at three meters from the satellite at max. So is the receiver that comes in a car, a vehicle, is it a better receiver than what's in your phone? No. No, it's Still not. the cheap receiver? Yes. If you want a good GPS receiver, you have to buy one of the Garmin's that are like $400 and up. Uh, mm -hmm. Surveyors actually have incredible GPS receivers. I would um, imagine so. Yeah, their receivers are also like a couple grand. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're probably the closest you could get to military grade without being military grade, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. But yeah... So it it's not on GPS, really. Just think the math involved on knowing where you are is pretty complex. And I do get into that a little later. So okay. we'll just leave that on the side. But do know most of the time you're looking at three meters of deviation max from the satellites. But they promise below seven mm -hmm. um, just to have a good, like a budget in case something goes wrong. Right. So now we need to talk about some of the specifics of GPS. And in order to get into why GPS is where it's at, so that way we understand how it works, we're going to get into orbits just a bit. Not not a lot, just just enough. Okay. Um, so there are several standard orbits used for satellites. Uh, you have LEO, which is low Earth orbit, mm -hmm. which is between 100 and 1,000 miles up. Um, this orbit is used the most often. It generally has like a 90 minute orbital period. Orbital period is how long it takes for the satellite to orbit around the earth. Mm -hmm. And generally, you know, if you put a satellite up in Leo, it, it's got a few years if you don't, you know, mm -hmm. adjust its orbit with station right. keeping. Um, isn't so, uh, the international space stations in Leo, is it not? Yes. Yes. It's in like the high Leo orbit. So around that thousand mile mark mm -hmm. or kilometer mark, uh, but it's no, no, it's miles. Sorry. Yeah. That thousand mile mark. But even still, they, they have to 
fill its tanks and stuff because there's a lot of station keeping they have to do. Station right. keeping is just the term used for keeping it in where it should be in its orbit. So like if they want it at 900 miles up in Leo, it's going to degrade and go back towards the Earth, mm-hmm. uh, usually pretty fast. So they have to burn thrusters and that sort of thing to keep it around that mark. Mm-hmm. Usually, though, like a lot of these small sats are really right and close to the Earth. Uh, so you can expect only like five years max lifespan without touching their orbit. But okay. with small sats, you can't really touch their orbit. So they get about five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do just burn up in the atmosphere. Also, even with LEO, uh, space junk is a concern. But as long as countries are cognizant of what they're doing, it's not that big of a concern with okay. having a bunch of stuff up there. Uh, you do have people that are kind of stupid and inconsiderate with their orbits, like China and Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very inconsiderate, and they put stuff up there, and then they don't match their orbits correctly, and they run into a lot of problems and create a lot of junk. Um, not much of a surprise from from that, really. Next, you have MEO, which is Medium mm-hmm. Earth Orbit. And this is more of an unofficial orbit. Okay. Uh, it has very vague parameters. It's anywhere between 1,000 and 20,000 miles. Um, mm. Yeah, it, it's incredibly vague, uh, which is why I don't think it's actually considered a real orbit just because of that. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is the orbit that GPS is in. It's in the higher range of that, and it has an orbital period of around 12 hours. Mm-hmm. which is phenomenal. That means it can, whenever it's shooting down its signal, it can see about a third of the Earth, mm-hmm. which is really good. Isn't uh, the Hubble at that orbit as well? No. The Hubble Space Telescope? No, it is not. It is not? It's further no. out? It is further out. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, yeah we'll, awesome. we'll get in there. It's, okay. it's really, really far out, and it's, it's pretty awesome. Next, you have HEO, which is highly elliptical orbit. It's not high Earth orbit like you'd think. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a weird orbit. So elliptical, you know, it's it's not a sphere or a circle like the rest are. Mm-hmm. The highly elliptical orbit allows it to range from a LEO for a portion of its orbital period and a GEO for most of its period. And the reason this is used is it allows for the poles. Most orbits don't really allow you to see the poles well, Mm -hmm. Um, just with where we can launch on Earth reliably. But HEO allows for you to see the poles. So like Russia, I I think GLONASS, I think they use HEO. It would make sense logically for them Mm -hmm. to use that, uh, just because they are pretty up there. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, a a lot of... Satellites for things that work in the poles will use HEO. Aren't a lot of weather satellites in that range, too? Uh, probably. I do know certain countries are making augmentation constellations for GPS that use HEO because they have such high population density, mm-hmm. like skyscrapers and stuff. That's what they use to augment it. And okay. since GPS is open source, really for its uh, primary signal. You can just do that. And then you have GEO, which is geosynchronous orbit. This orbit ranges from 20,000 to 24,000 miles. It's, in fact, so far out from Earth that it gets an equal pull from the Moon and Earth. So it does not move. Yeah, they're in gravitational pockets. Mm. Yeah, so that's where Hubble is. Yeah. So and that's why it was so difficult for the shuttle to go to it for the repair mission. Wait, did they repair it? Three times. Did they? It may yeah. actually be in here. Give me a second. Let me fact check myself. Yeah. The first time they did it, because when it first launched, the oh, mirror no. had warped, and they put basically a contact over the mirror to correct it. <laughs> and then they had to go up two other times because they replaced parts that had just worn out. And um, so they replaced them. Quick interruption. Okay. Um, I was very much wrong about the mm-hmm. Hubble. I, I thought that, you know, it would be in Geo, just so that way it's pretty far away from the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is in Leo. Oh. 
It's um, just in Leo way higher than the it, space station. It is at 545 kilometers. So it's it's actually pretty low. And the ISS is... Give me a second. Um, it is at uh, 350 kilometers. So yeah, the Hubble is above it. Yeah. Now I know okay. the, the new James Webb Space Telescope, when it launches, it's actually about uh, a considerable distance from the moon, past the moon. It's in, I think, the oh. L2 Lagrange point? Or is it L4? It is uh, L2. Okay. So, holy shit, it is far out. Yeah, the yeah, a Lagrange point... Earth. orbit Earth. Yeah, um, a Lagrange point is uh, spots that between the Earth, Moon, and the Sun, they create these pockets where you can yeah. put something in it, and it just naturally orbits the Sun from that position, and it doesn't require the food, or the food, the fuel. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't need that food. Yeah, that's Rocket right. Rocket food. <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't need as much because it's in basically orbit around the sun. But I digress. That's a whole other subject. Um, no, but that's that's really cool. So you can think of Geo as sort of Earth's versions of Lagrange points. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's equidistant, or it's not equidistant, but gravitationally, the pull is the same from uh, the moon and the Earth. So they don't move. Mm -hmm. uh, so whenever you put a satellite... Into one of those pockets, it sees the exact same part of Earth always. It rotates with the Earth at the same rate. Mm -hmm. And that would be terrible for GPS. Right. Hang on, before you go any further about yeah. uh, what would be terrible for GPS, I think it's time for an ad break. Whoa! Yeah, so here's an ad. And back to it would be terrible for GPS. So yes. why would that be terrible for GPS? So one of the things that GPS really thrives off is that 12-hour period. Mm -hmm. So if you were to look at its orbital track on the Earth, it slowly falls by about 5 degrees a day, I think, mm -hmm. uh, somewhere around there. And the benefit to that is you get more coverage mm -hmm. instead of if we had to put the constellation into GEO, we'd need more satellites because it's further out. Mm -hmm. They would need to be more powerful. It, yeah, it just causes a lot of problems. Basically, you'd, tri you'd probably end up tripling the cost per satellite. Oh, wow. And also, getting big things into geo is pretty, pretty tough. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, they're, they're heavy, so it takes a lot to get them out. Um, right. So, yeah, uh, it, it would actually be pretty bad for GPS. Currently, the GPS constellation is, I think, 31 satellites. Mm-hmm. So with those, you get a pretty solid coverage of the Earth. The places it struggles is with the poles. Right. But the rest of the Earth, it covers just fine. And you have that uh, movement from them to where, you know, they can see sort of different portions of the Earth. Uh, so it allows for, ironically, more consistency with their orbit. Mm -hmm. um, it, definitely more than Leo. If it was in Leo, we'd have the same problem where they don't have a big view of the Earth, so we'd need hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. um, and we'd constantly have to be putting them up, which is expensive. Yes. So ge Geo, we'd need 100 plus, and we'd fill in up Geo, and then it'd be a worthless orbit. So they are where they are, because they get good coverage of the Earth, they stay there, they don't require too much maintenance. It, it's honestly the cheapest option. And so, real quick, when you have your receiver... The way the way that it determines where you are is it like basically picking up a signal from what like four GPS satellites or uh, seven so or two or three? That's a great segue. Thanks for putting that in. That's oh, what we're going to talk about next. Oh, my segues are so good. <laughs> it's spot on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, now we've talked about the orbits, and you understand why Mio is the best orbit. For mm -hmm. GPS. Basically, GPS works like, uh, imagine them being lighthouses in space. And okay. constantly, at all hours of the day, forever, they're screaming where they think they are, mm -hmm. down to the Earth. And they're also screaming where they think their buddies are. 
Mm -hmm. And they're doing that forever. They're lighthouses that scream at you where they are. And I'll go into a little more detail about that analogy. So basically, GPS works by each satellite knowing where it is in its orbit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Roughly. I say roughly. It's not quite roughly, but there's always some inconsistencies with orbits. Just because you can't measure it super precise. And that's a lot of math that's way beyond me. So I'm sorry, guys. I can't go into depth about that. (laughs) (laughs) Each satellite also knows where its neighbors are. It then shoots that information down on its signal to the Earth. Mm -hmm. With that information from one satellite, you can tell that you're roughly on one third of the Earth or in space. You add in a second satellite. And now all of a sudden you have those two spheres crossing. So it drastically reduces where you could be. And mind you, there's still two points. There's the point on Earth and one in space. Right. And then with three satellites, it narrows it down to where you can only be in two points. You're either at that very specific point on Earth or you're in space. And Mm -hmm. since you're on Earth, your receiver throws out the other solution of being out in the middle of space. But you think, okay, we're done. You only need three satellites. No, you need a fourth. This fourth satellite, it doesn't it doesn't really help you with positioning. It -hmm. helps with timing. Uh So whenever the GPS signal is shooting down into onto the earth, it has Mm -hmm. to go through all the layers of the atmosphere. And due to the frequency is that, the ionosphere actually kind of interrupts it a bit. And sometimes you can get really, really slight millisecond delays. Mm-hmm. Those milliseconds lead to meters of inaccuracy. So the fourth satellite is there to correct the timing on the others. Uh-huh. So that way it retains its precise timing. Mm-hmm. And then you get where you are within, on average, three meters at max seven. And okay. that's that's how it works. It's actually really cool. So most satellites tend to have a really powerful signal. GPS, by the time the signal hits you, it has less power than a toaster. Oh, wow. So with its signal being open source, that's actually a really beneficial thing because there's a thing called the noise floor. And the noise floor basically is the ambient noise that the Earth has both Mm -hmm. from the planet and all the various signals. And basically, if your signal is below the floor, you can't pick it up. GPS, about half the signal is below the floor. But with its signal being so predictable and consistent, receivers can pick it up. And they guess the second half of the signal. Mm -hmm. And the message on it repeats, I I think, every 30 seconds or so. So that's why whenever you first load up your phone... Uh, it takes it a second, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, it has to predict that signal. Right. I would have to assume that the ambient noise coming from the Earth, aside from what the Earth naturally produces, but with all the radio stations and TV and everything like that that's getting beamed around, the Earth is probably pretty loud. It is incredibly noisy. So I think the noise floor is around, oh, what is it? Um... Let me let me Google it. I think it's at negative two hundred decibels, but I want to make sure before I say something. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Uh, it's around negative one forty dB, huh? and I know that sounds kind of like oh well, that's you know really quiet. It's not. While we talk at you know positive decibels, most signals go on a negative decibel scale. Mm-hmm. So GPS's signal is around there, which is very very low. Mm-hmm. But with it being open source, it's great because we can figure it out. And that's basically all I've got for navigation. Navigation, ironically, for the global positioning system is almost a secondary thing now. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Now, Duncan, do you want to go ahead and say it? Because during your time in the Air Force, you have said it a bunch and you have instructed your mother and me to also say it. So when your GPS in your phone sends you to the wrong place, whose fault is it? Yes, it is not GPS's. I think I I was trying to allude to that, 
Uh, I actually have on here for the end of it. That's what I was going to talk about. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry to jump the gun on that. But yes, yeah. over over the course of his military uh, career, we, his mother and I were instructed that anytime someone complained about GPS sending them to the wrong place to point out that it is not the satellite's fault, it is the software of whoever they were using to get directions from. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I've talked about it a bit more and most people don't even know gps is satellite based right uh which i hope you you guys are are you know listening to this and uh taking that away uh gps is really fucking cool yes but yes it is never gps's fault and gps is probably one of the most vital things at least in the united states probably canada and england as well Um, you know a good chunk of europe i i would dare say the on the planet well, yeah, no, because I I would imagine every ship, you know, every ship especially shipping GPS. container, probably has pretty pretty darn good GPS. Yes, they have those thousand dollar receivers. Right. Probably actually more expensive, but yeah, any plane right. has really sophisticated GPS receivers. Mm-hmm. Literally any of them. If it, um, I mean, I guess not a propeller plane might not, but anything above that will. So. So my question is, are the GPS trackers that they're putting in the <laughs> COVID-19 vaccines, are they the cheap ones in your phone or are the expensive one that airlines use? I, I mean, you know, Bill Gates has a lot of money, so I assume they're, you know, the units that take two people to lift and move around. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. So they're the plane-sized ones. Yeah. Also, that are- guys, a GPS receiver is not small. Even in your phone, they're not that small. You would notice it in your arm. And there's, there is literally no way for it to be in the juice. It would take cutting you open and putting a receiver in you. And also, you then have to incorporate abilities for that receiver to send out its location. Because guess what? GPS is a one-way road. It doesn't give a flying fuck about where you are. It doesn't listen. Well, of course you're going to say that. You're part of Big GPS. Yeah, that's true. I am <laughs> part of... I, I was in Big GPS for a while. <laughs> so just so we're clear, there is no way, at least for a large number of years, <laughs> that you can have a GPS tracker put in your body. Yes, that I can say that with 100% certainty. And um, because they are large, if they were to put one in your body, would it be safe to say that it might probably cause some sort of massive infection in your body? Yes, and pain. Okay. And it needs a power source, which means you'd have to have a battery in you. Um, you'd know. You'd know pretty, pretty fucking quick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. And, and also, with that, there is no reason to shrink GPS receivers any more than they already are. Sometimes technology stops progressing. Mm -hmm. And with GPS, it has. Because the signal has been the same for over 20 years. They don't need to make them smaller. They're as small as they need to be. Mm -hmm. You're not getting a fucking receiver put in your fucking arm. All right? (laughs) Okay. And it shouldn't matter anyway, because you're complaining about getting a GPS receiver from your phone, which has one in it. Possibly while you're in your car, which has probably multiple GPS trackers in it. Because if you have satellite radio, that's probably got one. If yep. you have OnStar, that has another one. If that you one have definitely does. In, if you have, you know, the map function, the GPS, then so you probably have a minimum of three in every vehicle manufactured probably after 2008. Yeah, basically, if you have your fucking phone, they know. And the government doesn't give a shit anyways. You're not that fucking special. Your language is atrocious. You know, your mom's going to listen to this. and She's going to be shocked at your language. <laughs> I See, I'm using it for gravity in this situation to really, really cement what I'm trying to say here. Speaking of gravity, that is something that GPS uses in its orbit. The gravity of the Earth and the moon to maintain its orbit. Uh, yeah, it Somewhere. uses yeah. Earth. Um, <laughs> well, I guess Moon would be the the yeah, geo. That, that's geo. I I mean, there is still a gravitational pull from the Moon. Don't get me wrong. It's just not a lot. And also, where it is in its orbit, I think it would take several million years for a GPS 
satellite to fall. Wow. Uh, yeah. So Hio, yeah. The every thousand miles is like a hundred years. Um, once you're out of Leo, so. Uh, so like 100 to 1,000 years, because the gravitational pull gets less... Uh, right. It's not quite exponentially, but it's close. Right. So, basically, sort of to get back to our last point before I ADD'd the conversation, <laughs> is while the satellites in space, new generations are made and they get better, the tracker or the receiver on Earth, there's no need for that to get better in advance in a way that would make it smaller or anything like that. The technology of the receiver has basically reached its conclusion. Yes, you're 1,000% correct. Uh, the reason the satellites are getting better, there there is a new signal that they have for civilians, and it's for emergency users. Mm -hmm. So only firefighters, police, that sort of thing will get these, like ambulances. And what that does, give me a second, I'm going to talk about something else, and then I'll continue talking about that. Okay. You're ADD in the conversation now by going to talk to something else. <laughs> okay. So I, I, can, I can talk about this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you just wanted to make sure. If it's on yeah. Google, you can talk about it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, oh, shit. Can, can I talk about this? <laughs> yeah. Um. So, uh, since we're still on navigation, I'll talk about a bit. I will talk a bit about the various signals that GPS puts down. So there's the L1 signal, um, which is, uh, just the single signal that comes to Earth. It's great. It works really fucking well. There's like no issues with it. It is a bit slow and it is repeatable. Um, mm -hmm. so if you want like a perfect signal and also the receivers in your phones, don't really do this because they're augmented by cell terrors and other things. And that's a whole other <laughs> thing that I'm right. not going to talk about. But yeah, I, I was a bit wrong. It's signal. No, it's signal repeats every 30 seconds. But it takes about 10 minutes to fully get it to a precise level. Okay. There is then the L2 band, which is for military. Mm -hmm. um, it's on a higher frequency. So frequencies work uh, sort of in reverse. So the L1 signal is at like 1575 megahertz. Uh, that is slower than 1227. Mm -hmm. So one issue that the single um, signal has that you use for your phone and basically the rest of the world uses is, like I mentioned, the ionosphere messes with it. It can't go through buildings. It bounces off stuff like that, mm -hmm. like trees, any solid structure. So that is why if you are if you are in New York, you're going to have a bad GPS signal. That's just the way it is. And by New York, you're talking the city, not yes, the state, New York correct. city, New York. I just want to um, clear. Oh yeah. Also, Japan, basically any place you, that there are a lot of uh, skyscrapers and large buildings that are dense. Because it bounces off those. So you get a delay off the signal, mm -hmm. causing inaccuracy on where you are. So L2 is a military. It gets around that. Then there is the L5, which is called safety of life. It is the fastest signal at 1176. Uh, it's mm -hmm. still in beta. Mm -hmm. And it will be used for safety of life in any sort of activity that requires a higher level of accuracy or smoke or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, it, it can penetrate buildings, which is great. Yeah. And it gets around all the issues that GPS has had before that. Another great thing about these signals is if you're using the L3 signal, you're still using the L1. Mm. So you get uh, two signals for the price of yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, you get double strength which is really a great deal. Right. Um, and again, that signal, it's free. Cool. You know? That is just a technology that the U.S. government spent probably a billion dollars on to make sure that everyone around the world who is doing safety of life things can have a better signal for free. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow, it's it being owned by the military is a pretty good thing, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have the capitalism and 
privatizing, sort of making it expensive, which is something that Galileo, the European Union's GPS, has. You have to pay to use that. Ah. Is the the Chinese and Russian ones, because they're talking about doing their version, they will probably be pay also, won't they? I do not believe they will be for civilians. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, the Chinese being militaristic. Who would have thought? I know, Um, right? And same with the Russians. Benefit is uh, Russia is historically really good at putting things in space, not really good about maintaining them once they're out there. Right. And uh, China's still new to the game, so we're not... I don't really know much about it. I haven't put too much time into researching it. Okay. Um, So we'll see off of them. So we've talked about navigation. We went into Mm -hmm. depth about it a little more than I had put in the script, but that's okay. You get to learn more. That's a great thing. And now to talk about GPS's most important mission, timing. And it it is arguable that the navigation part is just as important. I mean, it is, but timing is used more widely. So each satellite is equipped with a set of highly accurate atomic clocks. Mm -hmm. Most of the world uses their time. Mm -hmm. Um, Your phone goes off of it. Banks, any automated process goes off of it. The internet in its entirety goes off of it. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that go off of it. We would be here for an episode in of itself to just (laughs) cover what goes off of it. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess we'll we'll save that for season eight or something. Yeah, we'll we'll shortcut once we run out of ideas. We'll we'll cover it later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've mentioned the word atomic clock, and that mm-hmm. sounds really really fancy. So let's go into what a, an atomic clock is. Okay. Um, and you'll learn. Yeah, it's really fancy, but it's actually pretty simple. So GPS's orbit is insanely refined. It's basically a non-factor at this point. We know exactly how long each signal takes to reach Mm -hmm. the Earth. We know all of the factors that delay it. We have that fourth satellite to correct those delays. And now we're going to learn about the timing portion of that and why it is so important to have a good clock. Because the clock also tells the satellite where it is. And it tells you how long it took for the signal to take. You know, all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Basically, an atomic clock is just a piece of an element that is electrocuted to vibrate at a very specific frequency. Okay. You can measure that vibration to get an insanely accurate time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ones GPS uses are rubidium and cesium. Um, Those are some pretty pretty cool elements. Right? I looked it up, and rubidium is actually really expensive. I had no idea. Wow. So, to go into a little more depth and simplify exactly what an atomic clock does. Basically, Mm -hmm. uh, imagine you have these elements going through a tube. They're sort of floating along, and then they get to like the center of the tube, and they get electrocuted. Mm -hmm. The signals, or the elements that have gotten electrocuted to the correct frequency, sort of float up, and they go into a different tube. And the ones that didn't get electrocuted to the right frequency stay put. Uh... The ones that went into the tube, they sort of calm down, and they go back into the main chamber. Okay. So it it is a self-replicating cycle. It maintains itself, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it does need power. It's not like some, you know, perpetual thing. So let us go into the elements used a bit, because that is also important to note. Um, so what what number is, what did you say? Uh, Radidium? Yeah, what's its cesium. number on the periodic chart? Oh, I have no idea. Let me let oh. me go to friend Google here. You should have known I was going to ask you that. I'm sorry. I just know what it does in relation I'm... for GPS. I have absolutely no idea what their use is outside of timing. So we'll talk about cesium first. Mm-hmm. And cesium is great, but it has a slight problem. It is less accurate in the short term. It takes it about two days to level out. Otherwise, it'll have random spikes where, you know, a couple more elements like particles get electrocuted than they should. Stuff like that. Okay. And it levels out over the course of a week. That is really bad for GPS. 
Well, yeah, based on everything else you said earlier, I, I can see why that would be. Yeah. Um, one thing I didn't mention is each satellite is contacted every single day. Within a 24-hour period, it will be talked to at least once. Mm-hmm. During that time, whenever it's talked to, we learn where it thinks it is uh, through an insanely complex math uh, algorithm that I looked at and it kind of hurt. It kind of hurt my brain. It was so complicated. Um, it takes mm-hmm. that. It takes where are points that observe the satellites, and through some really, really, really fancy math, it then uh, gives it a new message so it can say where it is. Uh, <laughs> usually the satellites aren't out uh, off by much, but we do that regardless, uh, because contacting them every single day allows for us to know if there's any problems. Right. And fix them before they become problems. Mm-hmm. And it allows us to make sure that our message is as accurate as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. Cesium is the backup clock. It it is not the primary. It never is. So what you're saying is, if there's a problem, the cesium would seize control of the time. (laughs) Uh, No, their problem is they... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had to dad joke that. (laughs) Just like, oh, God, no. (laughs) I apologize for everybody listening that just cringed. (laughs) (laughs) Cesium, however, is incredibly durable. It is super (laughs) rugged. On our oldest satellites, which are, I think, probably around 27 years old, (laughs) the cesium still works on those. Oh, cool. Yeah. The rubidium died a long time ago, but the cesium's still kicking. It's not (laughs) accurate, but it's kicking. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) But we keep those on the satellites in case the rubidium uh, fails on launch. Right. It's always good to have backups. Anytime you make a satellite, you always have at least two backups for everything, which is another reason why satellites are heavy. Um, Yes. So rubidium is excellent for short-term accuracy. Mm -hmm. It is awesome. However, I believe it starts drifting around 72 hours, which, again, really isn't a problem for us because Mm -hmm. we talk to them every 24 hours. But it is the perfect clock for us because it has that short-term accuracy. So it allows the signal to have another bump in fidelity. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue with rubidium, it is very fragile. It is fragile to cold, it is fragile to heat, and it is fragile to vibration. All of the things that it encounters in orbit. Yes. It's not as big a problem once it's up in orbit. Right. However, it is a big problem on launch. Yes. So they actually have mechanisms to protect it during launch. Hey, Duncan? Yeah. Speaking of launches, I'm going to launch us into an ad break right now. Whoa! Okay, here's an ad. You're listening to the musings of an ADD mind podcast. And we're back. Okay. We, uh, you were yes, talking about how launch is tough on it. Yes. So launch is tough on rubidium because it is very fragile to cold, heat, and vibration. All of thing, all the things it incurs or it encounters when it's being launched, especially mm. vibration. Uh, even with that, I know they have mechanisms in place to protect uh, the clocks. They also. So, like, the primary satellite will be on during a launch and mm-hmm. launch, uh, just to make, cause you can't turn it on once you're up, once it's up there. You have to turn it on while it's down here. But rubidium, like, the clocks are never on just because they'll go, it, it's bad for them, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, that's typically for every satellite, you know, they'll have the primary systems on, but, uh, nothing else. So, even with all those factors, I have never heard of a rubidium clock failing from launch. Okay. Ever. That's cool. Yeah. And they, they obviously take boys. proper measures to protect it. Yeah. They've been launching them for, you know, 30 plus years probably, and never once has it been a problem. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty great. And that's about all I have. So the main takeaway from this is the GPS signal is one of the most accurate signals we have, like in the world. Mm-hmm. The military has been running GPS for over 20 years. And in that time, the operation and maintenance of the satellites 
has become a science. Mm -hmm. If you are driving around and your GPS, which you should call a receiver, it's your receiver, it's receiving the signal Mm -hmm. in space, the GPS signal, tells you to turn into a lake, that isn't on GPS. That's on the $2 receiver in your phone not doing the math right. Mm -hmm. Overall, I hope you enjoyed hearing about GPS and learning. Um, well, Dad, for one, got any, what? Well, I was going to say GPS, um, after listening to everything here, probably in terms of things that are important on the earth, like hugely important, GPS is probably top 15. Yes. Um, and most people don't realize it. Yes. GPS is vital to our way of life. If there ever happens to be a coronal mass ejection that is powerful enough to wipe out GPS, we're going to be fucked. But yeah. (laughs) Okay. Dad, Um, if you got any last minute questions. Well, I actually do have a few questions. So going forward, there are a couple things that are sort of, I think that we're leading to. That would be uh, perhaps having a permanent presence on the moon and eventually a permanent presence on Mars. Yes. Would we not then need a lunar positioning system and a Martian positioning system? So, lunar? Yeah, you'd probably need one. It'd take the signal a pretty long time to get there. Well, I mean, would you not, would they not be in orbit around the, um, you know, the moon? You should have a lunar positioning system. However, I don't think it'd be necessary. No, it'd probably be necessary because only one side of the moon yeah, yeah, you'd need a lunar positioning system. That could be a cheaper endeavor, though, because there's a lot less factors that you have to face with the moon. And you'd also need a Mars positioning system. Right. But of course, for both of those things, because you said the satellites are quite heavy, I guess the only, I guess the new uh, SLS that NASA's building would probably be powerful enough since it's a lunar launch rocket and Starship. SpaceX are probably the only two that could put a satellite as large as a GPS into orbit around the moon. And if Blue Origin ever actually makes the new Glenn, I guess it would probably also be powerful enough. So one benefit, I think, to having them orbit the moon, Mm -hmm. there are so many less factors that you really have to think about. You're far enough away that you're past the Van Allen radiation belt, Mm -hmm. which is something that our current satellites have to deal with. And they're really radiation proof because of it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to deal with that around the moon or Mars because, you know, Mars is dead and so is the moon. So they don't produce the same level of issue. They're also Mm -hmm. smaller, meaning their gravitational pull is a lot less, especially for the moon. You You could pretty much have a small sat for... For those, you oh. know, maybe maybe about like ten units or so. Okay. Because um, all it would have to do is, you know, have solar arrays powerful enough uh, for the sun, which mm-hmm. wouldn't be too bad. Uh, good batteries, and we're on lithium ion now, so we got batteries. So basically, a starship could launch the whole fleet in one launch. Um, I would say probably two, just to be safe. Okay. Even small sets for the moon, super heavy. Oh, right. for the moon, yeah, definitely. Uh, Mars would take a couple rounds. Yeah. And Mars, they would have to be a bit bigger, just because you do have to worry about gravity more. Mm-hmm. But you could probably pop them into a good orbit for that, and you could probably do geo. Yeah. Uh, just because there's nothing else, you know, to take up those slots, you could probably get away with it for Mars. Yeah. But yeah, it it actually wouldn't be too bad to set up those systems. And, you know, if we uh, set up a geo dock, which would be really cool. You could just build them on there. Right. Uh, and then you don't even have to worry about any of that. You have mm-hmm. whatever come by the geo dock, pick up whatever, because, you know, mm-hmm. everything's weightless in space, so it doesn't matter. You could have 12 million pounds on a little tiny thruster, and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's probably the best way forward, either like a geo dock. I think we should have one if we're going to do stuff with uh, Mars and the moon. Mm-hmm. But once we get to the moon, you know, you can really launch from there and it doesn't take a lot. That would probably be where you would want to build uh, Mars positioning satellites would probably moon. Yeah. Do a butt um, ton of them at once. And yeah, the yeah. escape velocity to get them into orbit around Mars would be a heck of a lot less. I, I think if 
it's something like really silly as like being low. I think if like the human had the power of an ant on jumping or something, mm-hmm. it could escape moon. Right. It's something little like that. Now, now Duncan, go with me here. Now I know right. that what I'm about to say is probably a minimum, a minimum of two to three hundred years away. Okay. All right, I'm ready. But in the future, would we not need a solar system positioning system? Um, I would say no. I would say no. Just shattered so, my dreams. Now, hear me out here <laughs> on why we wouldn't need that. Okay. All you have to do is, you know, we have those pockets, right? Around each celestial body has those pockets. Right. Oh, you're just saying put them around those. Just put beacons but. around each planet. Yeah, I guess that would make sense. And, and you can have them signatured for each planet. Yeah, you're right. I do think it'd be cool to have trillions of satellites everywhere in space, but... Um, well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, that'd be super cool, but that's a lot. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe once we start mining asteroids, then we can do that whenever we don't have to worry about resources. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, well, Duncan, I obviously appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I, anytime. I hope that this was uh, quite informational and a learning experience for people that are listening to know exactly, A, GPS is exceedingly and incredibly important to everyday life, B, the capabilities of sort of the receivers and the fact that you could not be injected with one in a vaccine because nanotechnology like that does not exist and it would kill you oh i also have another point on that that i just uh, okay about uh and it's actually a current problem that they're having with uh processors Uh uh-huh uh for like your computer Uh, like the central processing unit has gotten so small that it cannot get smaller i forget the exact term for it but there is a problem that is incurred whenever things are that small that the switches and stuff they use will intersect with each other. Oh. And in order to have something that small for putting into a body, you would have to overcome that problem. So not only would you need nanotechnology, you're saying you almost need quantum technology? Uh, it's pretty damn close, yeah. All right. <laughs> Let's just say physics aren't in favor of it. Okay. And just remember, everybody, Duncan is an expert in this field, and he knows crap that he is not allowed to tell us. So glad that he came on, and I feel like we learned uh, everything that we could possibly learn about GPS <laughs> within the legal limitations of the law. So another awesome resource that I recommend everybody check out if you're interested in learning more about the sort of backbone of our modern world, go to gps.gov. Everything mm-hmm. that you can know is there. Right. They have documents. They have I think they have a link to the ICD, which is the limitations on what GPS is allowed to do, is there. So Mm -hmm. you should check it out if you really want to get into the weeds. It's all there. It's all free. It's all open. Um, And I think it's important for everyone to learn because GPS really is the backbone of our world. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe, Maybe backbone isn't really appropriate. Maybe it's more the nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that fits. Yeah, it's just incredible everything that we use GPS for that we don't realize we're using it for. Yeah. Another really cool thing to keep in mind is we all, so we know that time is affected by gravity, right? Mm -hmm. Which means inherently the clocks we have on Earth are not as accurate as the ones in space because the ones in space aren't affected to the same degree. So you're saying the best clocks on Earth are in orbit around it? Yes. Although there are some really, really cool clocks that I wish we could get into space. <laughs> uh, but it's just not possible. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the best clocks on Earth are in space. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been really informative. I feel that it was a great teaching experience. If you want to learn about how GPS helps farmers, you can go to the YouTube channel Cole the Corn Star. He has several You may have to go through his record. He uploads every day, so he puts a lot of content out. But most of his videos are only around, you know, 10 to 15 minutes long. And he does have several videos about how the GPS helps them be more accurate 
all of that stuff on their equipment. And just so you know, Cole the Corn Star's brother, Cooper, has perhaps one of America's greatest mullets. <laughs> and it is intentional. <laughs> And then also, like Duncan said, you can go to gps.gov if you want to learn more about how the GPS systems work. And at the time this comes out, I don't know if it would have launched yet. But even though I have not completed one season of Musings of an ADD Mind, uh, my friend Kenyetta was a guest earlier in the season. Uh, She was talking about growing up an Air Force brat as uh, African-American and female. Uh, Her and I have decided to start a new podcast together. We had such a great time. And the name of that podcast is Kenyatta and Jack Save the World. Hopefully by the time this airs, we would have launched. We're doing some pre-production sort of stuff. So you might want to uh, check that out. What a great name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. Uh, We're not afraid to talk about the tough things in America, and we're going to discuss them. And if everybody listens to us, the world will be a better place. (laughs) We're not bragging or anything like that. We're just saying. That's all we're saying. (laughs) Anyway, with that, unless Duncan has something else that he wants to say. Um, No, no, I covered all my tangents. Okay, got a few more episodes talking about sort of space things coming up for the rest of the month. I hope everybody sticks around, and until then, just remember, even though Mr. Rogers would have been quite upset at the language Duncan used in this episode, Very true. Try to live your life in a way that would make Mr. Rogers proud. Talk to you later.